Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. So glad to be here with you this morning. I thank you for the invitation and uh, look forward to being here not only today, but God willing, next Sunday as well, and uh, sharing together, encouraging one another from God's Word. And uh, I'm, I'm, I, was, I leaned over to James while Naeem was uh, exhorting us for the tithes and offering. I thought, I'm, I'm going to invite him to my church to speak before the tithes and offering. Um, because, I, yeah. Uh, because, you know, we, we don't really, uh, you know, we feel the same way. I feel like our church is very rich. It's very blessed. Uh, God doesn't need our offering. But what he hit upon was, it's, it's just it. It's not about that money at all, but this uh, great offering that he has poured out for us. So I thought that was well said. And I, you know... Um, would just echo it and say amen, and uh, uh, God uh, may God continue to bless City on a Hill Church. I have been blessed because of you. I've been blessed through you, and uh, blessed to know, be a part of what God is doing and, and get to know a part of what God is doing. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Jonah in Jonah today, and I laugh because Jonah is sort of a comic footnote in the Old Testament. I don't know if you ever think about that. I heard it explained to me one time that... Um, uh, Jeremiah versus Jonah, and um, uh, the guy was making the point that uh, Jeremiah, right, least successful prophet in Israelite history. Did you know that? Jeremiah, least successful. Like, when Jeremiah begins his ministry, he's told, no one's going to listen to you. Go, right? You're going to be an absolute failure. Now go. All, everything you know about God's hand of blessing is going to crumble before your eyes. Good luck. Have fun. No one's going to listen to you, mind you. Not, no, I mean, nobody, no converts. Jeremiah, least successful prophet in Israelite history. Jonah, on the other hand, most successful prophet in Israelite history. A sermon, a city, everybody saved. Right? Like, he's batting a thousand. Nobody does that in the whole Old Testament. The most successful prophet in Israelite history. But here's the thing, least faithful. Jeremiah, the most faithful, least successful. Jonah, least faithful, most successful. It's a very simple lesson. We can't see what God's doing with our obedience, can we? Our job is to be faithful. Not even necessarily successful, just faithful. And then, thousands of years later, we look back, and Jeremiah was the one who stood as the linchpin of Israelite history. When Israel was hanging on by a thread, it was Jeremiah that said to the exiles, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Holds them together as they're hanging by a thread. Jonah is a comic footnote and gets swallowed by a whale. <laughs> right? Isn't that something? Faithfulness, not success. Faithfulness. And so I usually just sort of, well, I come to Jonah and I, I, uh, I think, oh, you know, this is a funny story. It's a fish story, right? But then uh, my wife has been working with the children at church and all year been teaching them the story of Jonah. And so I've been forced to reevaluate Jonah altogether. I've been forced to come back to Jonah. And so I promised her that, I, okay, I will preach on Jonah when the kids have their big presentation. And so the kids have put together this presentation at our church and the Lord laid on my heart a message from Jonah and uh, it's uh, uh, more than I thought, you know, again, I always thought, well, it's the story, you know, you get swallowed by the fish and it's a funny uh, story, um, but there's so much here. And so I just want to begin with a word of prayer that God would open up our hearts to this simple message. I just want to make sort of a one point message today and uh, that God would open our hearts to it. That's all. Pray with me. Father, I pray 
that you would open our hearts to what you say to us through your word. We don't need particularly to hear the uh, clever words of any human speaker, but we desperately need to hear from you. We come today hungry for you, even if we don't know it, we're hungry for you. We come today thirsty for you, even if we don't know it, our deepest need is to hear from you, Lord. And I pray, God, that what you give us, we would put, we would take it to heart and we'd put it into action. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3, and before I get there, I want to uh, uh, tell a quick illustration of, you know, these kids going to Kidmo. The, the, the thing about children is their lack of guile. You know what I mean? There's just this innocence. And at some point, uh, adults, we, we sort of outgrow that, and we get a little hard-hearted, we get a little cynical, but there's none of that in children. And it's really fun to watch when you see that play out. And uh, uh, every time you go to a playground, it's like a sociological experiment, right? You get to sort of watch this guileless nature as they interact one with another. There's many teachers in this room. You know what I'm talking about, or, you you know, if you have your own children. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife had an appointment in Long Island, and so we were not at our home playground. You know, we were on visitor turf, and we had to, uh, she had to go to the doctor's appointment, and uh, that means, Tom, you get the two kids and go find a playground. That's exactly what we did, and we're uh, uh, playing around, and... uh, 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 Katie, my four-year-old daughter, gets high up on the playground equipment and comes to the fireman's pole. You guys know uh, what this one is, right? And so uh, it doesn't look that daunting, but when you get up there, it's sort of a leap of faith to grab on for a four-year-old and to slide down this uh, fireman's pole. She's never really done it by herself. And I'm standing. I can obviously reach where she is, but, uh, you know, she's looking down. And so uh, I can tell there's great trepidation, and I'm watching this whole thing as she's got this recalcitrance in her heart, you know, and she's thinking, it's a step of faith, what do I do? And I'm going, this is going to be a sermon illustration. (laughs) Yes! Anyway, uh, one day she's going to learn and, like, charge me royalties. Like, that was a $10 sermon, Dad. I did that. Anyway, um, uh, so I can see this moment of faith, and she looks at me, and, and she's like, uh, Daddy, hold on to me until I say, you know, let go, and I'm going to do this, you know, and she sort of steps out, and I've got her, and grabs, and then about halfway down, you know, it's let go, you know, like skin graft the whole way down, you know the deal, and she makes it down, anyway, rejoicing, like great rejoicing, she was rejoicing, I was rejoicing, I did it, and I'm like, well, yeah, but, but she, you know, she did it, I'm, you know. So I was elated, and because I know this is a huge step of faith for her. And while I'm having this moment of celebration, the, a big boy, he was probably five or six, a big boy is standing watching this whole thing. And I don't know if he didn't get enough attention at home or what his deal was, but he yells out, watches this whole thing, he yells out, I know how to do that. <laughs> I can do that. And here I'm thinking, now here's the great thing about kids. Katie doesn't think a thing about it. Katie's actually happy for him awesome, you can do it, you know, and I'm going, really, like, I'm thinking, why you got to ruin this moment, you know, like, you're six, of course you can do it, what do you want, a cookie, like, she's just, you know, like, I'm all mean and evil and grumpy, Uh, but I'm thinking, why you got to be that way, right, a few minutes later, but Katie was sort of delighted by it, she was like, that's awesome, you can do it, daddy, that's great, a few minutes go by, and, uh, you know, we're all running around everything, and Katie finds herself, just happens to be looking up at the fireman's pole, when the big boy makes his way to the fireman's pole, and he gets up there and <clears throat> sort of backs off, <clears throat> looks down, kind of backs off. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right? Looks around. Anyway, scampers down the other way and comes down. And this is what's a great thing. Not, Katie didn't mean a bit of guile, didn't mean just in complete innocence. 
the kid comes around in the front, and Katie looks at him and says, right, like watches the whole thing. That obviously, big talker here couldn't do it, right? This is what she says to him. If you say you can do it, you should just do it. And I was like, that's my girl! You know what I couldn't say? Like, call him out, you know? I obviously would have meant it evil. But she didn't mean it that way at all. She was just saying an obvious fact that everybody in here knows. It's easy to talk big. But if you say you know this stuff, just do it. That's it. If you say you've got any kind of knowledge of this stuff, who cares? Then when the time comes, do it. It's not how much of the Bible you know. It's where you do it. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. But you could. That's it. That's the sermon. If you fall asleep for the rest of it, you will not have missed anything. I'm done. The rest, we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at everything. But if you miss the whole sermon, you wake up and what was that about? If you've been awake, that's it. It's not how much Bible you know. It's what you do with whatever it is you know. It's not how much knowledge you amass about Christianity or doctrines or theology. It's will you, what will you put into practice? What will you do with what you know? Let me tell you why this matters so much. It's an obvious truth. Here's why it matters so much. It matters for every kind, all kinds of people. Let me talk first to the noobs, okay? Any newbies. If you are new to Christianity, you're new to God, it could be that this is your first time in church for a long time, or it could be your first time in church ever. First of all, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. You are at the right place. And here's why this truth matters so much for you. Particularly, or maybe you've been here at church a little while, but you would still classify yourself as a newbie. I'm a new Christian, or man, I grew up in a particular kind of denomination, and I'm still recovering. You know, I'm trying to get it, you know, or I'm trying to get out of this or into that, whatever. You're new to all this. This is why this is so important. If you're new to all this, there is a trap. If you don't apply today's truth, if you don't hear from the word of God and apply this simple truth, you could potentially fall into this trap of, well, I, uh, I really do need to follow God. I do need to take a step of faith, but I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uninitiated. I don't know enough. I don't really know enough. God may be calling me to a step of obedience, but gosh, I don't know enough. I mean, don't I need to like read a bunch of commentaries or read a bunch? Of, I mean, I have to memorize a bunch of scriptures and stuff, right? Here's why that's so dangerous. You could potentially waste years in that. You could spin your wheels for years before you come to the place where, you know, because that day may never come. There may never come a day where you're like, huh. Like you're sitting there reading your Bible and you come to the end of a verse. You're like, huh, it just happened. I now know enough scripture. Right? That, 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 that day does not occur. And so you're going to, you could waste potentially years before you Think about it, what God might have for you, the plans he might have for you, but you're stuck going, but I've just been here a couple months, right? Or I've just been here a couple weeks. You feel like God's telling you to do something. I, I don't know. I don't know enough. Okay? Dangerous. On the other hand, there are those of us who are no longer noobs. We are veterans of all this stuff, right? We've been around church a long time. We've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And it's dangerous for us as well if we don't understand this important truth, if we don't grasp the truth from this morning. Because what will happen is we begin to use theology and doctrine. Uh, One thing that can happen is we begin to use it as a crutch. And listen, I'm the chief of sinners on this. Here's the deal. I would rather preach a hundred sermons to you guys on personal evangelism, sharing your faith. I would rather preach a hundred sermons on that than go across the hall in my apartment building and share with Frank. Why? 
Because what I can do is I can talk this big game and hide behind. I can use doctrine and theology as a mask to insecurity and disobedience. You see? It's easier to do that. It's easier to talk about that than it is to do it. And I think this, this, this idea is like, well, I, you know, I, what I really need to do is take this step of faith, but it's a big leap of faith. So instead, I will study this leap of faith. Right? Instead of doing it. Or worse. The only thing worse than that is to have a head full of knowledge, but no love and no peace with God. To be like a man on a desert island who has a library of cookbooks, but no food. Right? The man who knew the most about the Bible. Okay, other than Jesus, who is the, the person who knew the most about the Bible? An acceptable answer is Moses. I will allow Moses. But other than Jesus and Moses, who's it got to be? Who knows the most about the Bible? Uh, you know, think about Bible people and Bible knowledge and Billy Graham and James Lecce. Think about all these theologians. Or who is it that you would say, other than Jesus and Moses, who's it got to be? Say it out. It's got to be Paul, right? He was Saul, then he was Paul. This guy knew the scriptures. I know some people are like, I had Hezekiah. I missed that. I right, I, okay. You may know something I don't. But, but, but. I would say Paul, because I know people, and they're like, Romans is such a hard book, and there are people that are like, but I have so much theology, I've read all these books, I understand the book of Romans. Paul's like, I wrote the book of Romans, so, you know, right? So he's got it, he knows a lot of the New Testament, because he wrote a lot of the New Testament, right? So he's, he's, okay, the guy with the most Bible knowledge of all. This is what he said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there was a group of people and they were fighting about something. This, this blows my mind. If anybody would have said, what you really need is a knowledge-based Christianity. If anybody would have said, what you need is more facts. What you need is more knowledge. You need to amass your library of Christian knowledge. You need to beef up your understanding and your knowledge and your doctrine of theology. If anybody would have said that, it would have been Paul. And he says the most amazing thing in 1 Corinthians 8. You know what he says? He says, knowledge puffs up but love builds up now paul was not celebrating ignorance and we'll talk about that in just a second paul was not any intellectual that's my point but what he was saying was so simple knowledge is a noun but love love is a verb it's not knowing this stuff that matters you can know this stuff and be pretty wicked actually it's what do you do with it what are you doing with it and that brings me to jonah and the sermon's not actually about jonah it's about these ninevites all right let's uh let's look at jonah chapter three and i'll read the whole chapter just 10 verses you ready so we've gone from, uh, you guys know the story, right? Jonah, go to Nineveh. And uh, why, do you, why do you go to Nineveh? If you remember your history, uh, God basically is going to wipe Nineveh out for the good of everybody. Their evil has come up against the Lord. So he says, go and preach against it. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the map, and it's going to be a blessing to everybody. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is enemies of everybody, but not the least of which they're enemies of the Jewish people. And they're like terrorists. They threaten them, and, and they could be killed. And so Jonah, if anything, he, he hates them. Maybe he's even scared of them. But the last thing he would want is for them to like hear any word from the Lord because, quite frankly, he would be just fine if he watched the fireworks from heaven and they all uh, disintegrated and died. Uh, God orchestrates a great fish to swallow him, prayer from the fish. You remember all this stuff. While Jonah is covered in the guts of sea mammals, 
then, which is where disobedience will ultimately lead you, uh, vomit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We will not take time to talk about the 14 trillion tons of grace that is packed into that simple comment. I mean, really, Jonah chapter 3 should begin, Then the Lord moved on to a different prophet. Right? Right? And it's true for my life, too. I mean, at some point, God's like, dude, right? And yet, the the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Pain will do that. It It will increase your obedience. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. So here we go. We're getting to the good part. Uh, When he says Jonah's a great city, he does not mean morally great, just the opposite. Nineveh was a wicked city. And I just have to give you a little bit of background so that you will appreciate and understand uh, what happened here. Uh, Because you you know the end of the story, right? The Ninevites, you know this, right? They repent and they get right with the Lord. So so, to back that up a little bit. When our kids, this last Sunday, our kids at the church did a production of Jonah, they were trying to illustrate the wicked Ninevites' repentance. So it was so cute. So they, they asked the kids to write that part of the play themselves. And so they did. And so the script, the little kids would waddle up to the mic and they would say, I used to not share my toys, but now I do. Right? And they would like waddle off and the church is like, awesome. Because they thought of that themselves. Because my wife told them, what's something that's evil, that you, you know, wicked that you could change? Right? And then the next one was like, I used to hit my sister, but now I've stopped. You know, whatever. And they're like doing these things. It's awesome, right? I used to litter. You know, right? And while you look at that and it's cute, you're going, kid, I got real problems, right? And the Ninevites, that's my point. The Ninevites were not like, I used to hit my sister. Some commentators believe that the Ninevites, when I use that word terrorist, I don't use it lightly. They hated these neighboring cities. They were very powerful, and they could impose their will on others. They had this walled city. It was fed by a river. You can't out, you're not going to siege warfare them. You're not going to, you know, what, what are you going to do to this great city? And they, uh, their wickedness was mainly showed up in its violence and uh, uh, the way they treated uh, prisoners and the way they would, you know, you'd rather uh, kill yourself rather than be captured by the Ninevites. And if you're squeamish, this is the part of the sermon, just cover your ears. But more than one commentator pointed out their favorite habit was to skin their, uh, uh, cap- uh, their cap- captives, skin them alive. Skin them alive. Can you imagine? It's hard to capture that kind of wickedness in the children's program. I mean, it, it takes a, you got to be a tough church to be like, I used to skin my brother alive. But not. Like, you, you know, so, right? So it's sort of the PG version. But my point is wickedness. Everybody with me? Yeah. Vividly with me? Okay. Yeah. Then uh, what is it? This is it. This is the point. What is it that causes massive revival among the Ninevites? You tell me, what kind of sermon does it take to go from, I skin my enemies alive, to uh, let us uh, come before the Lord God? What, what kind of transaction has to happen? What kind of Bible knowledge do you need to go from that point A to point B? Here it is. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. End of sermon. That's it. For those of you keeping score, it's eight words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the ESV is, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Still eight words. Can't mess with the word of God. I'm just saying, right? It's right there. 40 more days. You get an eight-word sermon. The Ninevites get an eight-word sermon, and they go from skinning people alive to total repentance on eight words. In fact, it's, it's the world's worst sermon ever. Can you imagine? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Peace! Jonah out. No, like, here's the hope. Here's what to do. Here's four spiritual laws. You gonna die. Prophet out. That's it. Right? This is not seeker sensitive. There's no, and we're going to dismiss for kid mode. No, everybody, you're all going to die. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast in all of them from the greatest to the least and put on sackcloth. We, we, look, I, I cannot move too quickly past this. An eight word awful sermon. Uh, everybody do a little experiment with me. Um, take your finger and uh, start in the book of uh, Genesis. And you have to go through a preface and you have to go through table of contents. But you'll eventually get there. Go to Genesis and hold, in the word of God, hold Genesis to Obadiah. Okay? Okay, I'm, I'm doing this alone. That, no problem, no problem. Some of you are like, I got my Bible on my phone. I can't do this. Like you're holding the phone virtually. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, well, I'll do it for you. Watch, watch, watch. Here's Jonah 1 through 4. Here's Genesis to Obadiah. Now watch carefully. This is how much of the word of God the people of Israel had. And they would not listen to God. They would not repent. They were not soft toward God. Okay? Here's how much the Ninevites got. (laughs) Boom! On my face before the Lord, right? Part of the book of Jonah is God going, are you kidding me? The pagan sailors, they, they were worried about offending Yahweh. The, uh, the Ninevites, who skinned people alive, they were worried about offending Yahweh. And you've got this much of the word of God. And just as I'm preaching this, going, those foolish Israelites, how could they not have known? It occurs to me, I got even more. I got the New Testament too. So the Ninevites have these eight words when the people of Israel and I have 66 books. Well, you say, okay, okay, so eight-word sermon. It must have been something more. It must, something been, must have been the character. You know what it was? You know what it was? It was probably such a charismatic preacher who they could tell. It was probably the, the character of the preacher preaching the sermon. He probably cared so deeply for the people. Nope. He hated them, right? So you got eight words with no hope from a preacher who hates you. Like, you know, that, you know what I mean? Like when somebody preaches, like, you know, they preach wrath, but they're a little too happy about it. You know that? <laughs> God's wrath is coming. <laughs> I'm like, what's creepy? That's Jonah. Uh, well, you'd say, okay, well, they must have surely been having a bunch of Ninevite Bible studies in preparation for this. No, it turns out there's this great line at the end of Nineveh. I mean, at the end, <laughs> at the end of Jonah. It, you know, it's the only Bible book. Ends with a question. And um, uh, he says, shouldn't I, you know, you were so worried about this plant. Shouldn't I have a heart for all these Ninevites, not to mention perfectly good livestock, but he says, for all these Ninevites, and here's, this is the line, who don't even know their right hand from their left. Now, that doesn't mean they were bad at navigation. It means they had no moral compass. Actually, we use that idiom today, don't we? Our nation does not have a moral compass. We don't know, uh, 
east from west. It doesn't mean we don't know direction. It means we have no understanding of God. They have, we have no, they don't know what's right and wrong. So they don't, they don't even have a, they have a broken conscience. It's not even like God could have pricked their conscience. It, it, they, they, they have no Bible studies. They have no knowledge of the living God. They have a preacher who could care less about them. They have an eight-word sermon with no hope. And they have no step-by-step instructions of what to do next. Not one word of hope. So what happens? What causes? What goes from uh, total wickedness and total evil to national widespread revival? The answer is simple. They believed. They took those eight words and they acted on them. That's it. What did I tell you? The point of the sermon. You can sleep through it. It's not how much you know. Even if you just know eight words, it's what? It's what you will do with what you know. And the Ninevites, the very next verse, what does it say? After this sermon, 40 more days, then it will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. It's like breathless with how fast they obeyed God. In the Hebrew, it's even better. The first word in the next verse is believed. Because the Hebrew is like out of order. It's like Yoda. Believe they did. It's like, uh, 40 more days, you'll be overturned. Believed they did. And immediately began all these things. It's like showing you just how fast it gets to believe. They, they were on it. They jumped on it. So here's what they did. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. They're just making this up. They, they figured maybe that's what we should do. From the greatest to the least, I don't know, put on sackcloth. Then the news reached the king of the Nineveh. That's important because it's not like top down the king is making a strategic move. The people all at once received the same message. God is at work and the people put it into place. And then eventually the king's like, oh yeah, I want to get on board too. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, I guess, herd or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. The poor cow's like, we, we did not sin. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. They are out there covering donkeys with sackcloth. Do you understand? They're making this stuff up. They have no clue what they're doing. They're hoping for the best. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In case you haven't noticed, um, I'm making a point with all that. They're making this stuff up. See, some people would say, whoa, 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 that's my problem. See, that's my problem. I don't know too much about God. I don't know too much about following his will. And that's why I need to learn more about the Bible before I start any, t- any, taking any kinds of steps of faith, before I start any kind of obedience. I need to know more because I don't even know the next step. Like, I don't know all the rituals, you know? What if, I, what if I'm in church and I stand up when everybody else sits down? I mean, I sinner, you know? Or like, what if I sit down when everybody else stands up? Or what if, like, I don't know how to take the Lord's Supper and I take it wrong? You know, they're like, everybody's dipping. I just grab it and guzzle. Like, what, what if I do all that wrong? What, I don't know the proper rituals. And that's my point. The Ninevites were clueless. Wait, wait, what, you think God was like, tell the animals to fast, you know? They're just making stuff up. They don't know the rituals either. But this is the point. But what stirred God's heart? What stirred God's heart? Did God look down and say... Hey, they got every one of their religious man-made rituals right. Is that what he says? Look what he says. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. It was the giving up of their violence. It was the step of obedience. It was the step of faith. It was believing God enough to go, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. And I'm going to put away violence. When, they, when God saw their heart, when he saw that motion of obedience, then... He relented, didn't he? He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. What stirred God's heart was a group of people who didn't have much. Man, they had eight words. 
but they took those eight words and they acted on them. Now, you got more than eight words. Act. What stirred God's heart was that these people were willing to act on what they knew and what they heard. And what broke God's heart is that Israel, his very own chosen people, wouldn't. That's why, interestingly, that's why in Matthew 12, you remember this scene? The Pharisees come up to the scribes and they come, the scribes and Pharisees. These are people who know, know, know the Bible. I mean, they got all this knowledge. And that's what makes this so unique. Of all people, it was the scribes. It was the experts in the law. Do you, do you understand? They knew the story of Jonah. They had it memorized. They, they, they knew the scriptures. They come up to Jesus and they say, huh, you're the one from God or not? Give us a sign. Give us another sign. In Matthew 12, remember what Jesus tells them? A wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign. He's saying, enough with all the signs. Enough with you. you guys have all the, are you kidding me? You've got all this expert knowledge. You've got all this stuff. He says, uh, you know what? No sign will be given you except, you know what he says? Except the sign of Jonah. And then he points to a little prophetic thing about how Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights. Right? Resurrection. But then he, the point is, he says something after that. He says, you know, on the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up against this generation. Now, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about everything I've been preaching. He's saying, guys, you are the scribes. You know the scriptures forwards and backwards. Because it's, it's Hebrew. So we would... You understand this stuff. You get it all. And yet you don't obey me. You don't follow me with your heart. You get everybody caught up in legalism. So you know what's going to happen? At the day of judgment, you won't even need God to judge. The men of Nineveh are going to stand up and go, for real? For real. We got eight words, and we put our cows in sackcloth. You mean to tell me you got how many books in the Old Testament? X number of books. We don't know. We're Ninevites. You, whatever. You got all this scripture, and you mean to tell me you missed the obvious fact that Jesus is Messiah, therefore Lord of your life, therefore take the next step of obedience? God's like, I'll judge. No, no, no we got this. You are out of your mind, right? And the Ninevites are going to rise up and judge. That's what he meant. That's what he meant. Now, it would be so, this sermon would be, I'd be so much more cool with this whole sermon if I weren't so much like the Israelites in this story. You know what I mean? Like when I look at my life, if I were, if you're like a Ninevite, I mean, if you came in here and you're just like, I mean, covered in evil. You're like, I've never been to church before. I just came here to see if the Lord would strike me down for being here, right? And you're sitting in the back and you're hearing all this. In a way, it's good news for you. All you need is an eighth sermon. And here it is. Ready? You will face God and eternity one day. That's all you need. And what you do with that, if you believe God and change your life, guess what? You just might seek and you will find. You just might look around and go, I don't want to face God. Is there any mercy and hope? And the good news of what Jesus did on the cross for you might just have a chance of sticking, right? So that, in a way, you're a Ninevite. That's, that's great. But for so many of us, we're the Israelites here. We've got so much, we're just not doing it. Now, I, I just have to insert this at the end. Am I being anti-intellectual? Because you've heard me say, you don't need to know this stuff, you need to do it. Am I being anti-intellectual? Well, am I saying, in other words, we should be ignorant on purpose and we should not seek to know and study the Word of God? Of course not. Why? Because as you, as you obey God, listen, to understand why, submit and apply. When you begin to obey God, you know what's going to happen? You're naturally going to hunger and thirst for the Word of God. I promise 
You won't have to stop somebody from seeking after the word of God. So I'm not one of these guys that's like, oh, don't study this. In fact, if you're ever in a church and they're like, don't study the word of God, listen to what I say, you need to run because you're in a cult, my friend. You're not in a church, right? So I'm a guy who says, yes, study this. You need to study it. You know, I'm not being anti-intellectual. What I'm saying, though, is that you don't learn God in the same way you learn calculus. Which some of you are like, because I'd fail God too. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, but you get my point? God is not a set of theorems. He's not a set of facts and beliefs. Does that make sense? God is a personal being. And you know God as you do his will. As you act, you experience him. And this is a special warning for all you uh, who just graduated college and high school and all you brainy types. Uh, 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 church isn't the transfer of knowledge from Professor Tom's notes into your notes so that you can pass your God exam. Uh, what it is, is you're acting in obedience to what you sense God wants. And even if, listen, even if you mess up, even if you're wrong, even if you're out there putting sackcloth on your donkey, but you're doing it from a heart that says, God, I'm here. This is what I think you want me to do. This is what I'm doing. Don't you see? God is pleased with your stumbling, bumbling faith more so than a perfectly accurate knowledge that doesn't do anything. Does that make sense? That's it. Do it. Do it. Act on what you know. What is your next logical step? This is where it's hard to preach a sermon because you're like, I, I know what needs to get out there, but I don't know what your next logical step is. I can only know what it is for me. At best, maybe I can help uh, you know, a few people around me that I'm in community with. But what is your next logical step of faith? My point is simply don't wait. Don't let the excuse, well, I need to know more, be the thing that holds you up. Your next, what is your next logical step? It could be, if, you, if you've never been here before, your next logical step of faith could simply be this. Come back next week. Really, that could be it. And I want you to hang around the things of God and the people of God and get your questions answered. You've got great questions, and I don't doubt that. And I want you to come back, and I want you to be a part of what God's doing. I want you to just come and see. It could be that your next step, though, is you're involved in something, and you know you need to repent. You don't need to read another book about it. You need to put it into action. It could be that you need to follow the Lord in water baptism. It could be that you need to evangelize and tell the good news to someone. Oh, but I won't know enough. I won't know enough. Eight words, man. It's the power of God, not your ability. Jonah didn't argue Nineveh into faith. Maybe it could be that you're in a relationship that does not honor God. And your next step of faith, say, this doesn't feel like church, man. You're talking about relationships. Yeah, it has everything to do with every part of your life. You need to break up with that person. Or, or maybe you're in a relationship where there's unforgiveness and you need to reconcile with that person. See, I don't know what your next step of faith is. It could be something like this. You know, several weeks ago, God laid something on my heart. And I just, I let it go. And I know it's still there, but I let it go. You need to pick that up and do that. Sometimes young people say, what does God want me to do? I don't hear from God. Sometimes I'll ask them, what's the very last, what's the last time you heard God speak? Well, it was years ago. I was at a camp and I heard him say this. Have you done that? Well, no. Go and do that. And then worry about getting your next word from God. You know, you're not going to do what he tells you. Does that make sense? What is it that's on your heart? I need to start a family worship. Or, you know, it's one of those things that's usually, you know, someday I need to get my kids memorizing scripture. You know, someday, whatever it is that's on your heart, make it today. The Ninevites got eight words. I've given you a sermon of 800 trillion or however many. I talk fast. I don't know. Let's play a fun game as a church. How fast can we obey God? <laughs> How quickly can we obey God? what he's asking us to do. How quickly can we help one another? Imagine a world that does that. Imagine, let me ask you, how would your childhood have been different if you had a mom and a dad that thought, how fast can we obey the word of God in our life? 
Some of you had that. How grateful are you for the person that led you to Christ that didn't wait around to act on what God said when they said share with you, make that invitation at the church? How would your marriage look if, if you weren't puffed up on Bible knowledge but you were built up on love, living the stuff that we got? How, what would the world look at City on a Hill Community Church? What would they see if it weren't about uh, being puffed up on knowledge but as you continue to do what I see this church do, and that's acted out on love. What if we could just fuel that, uh, uh, fan that fire today for you to continue doing this good work? And don't give up, and don't get tired. You're doing a good work. Eternity's forever. You guys can hang in there for a few more decades. That's it. Um, the, uh, the, the whole sermon was in the first... Two minutes. It's just, it's not how much Bible you know, it's what you do with what you know. That's really it. Now, there is one last part of this whole story that uh, should, uh, it bugs me, and it maybe should bug you just a little bit, and that's the whole idea of skinning people alive. <clears throat> I had to come back to this. The Ninevites essentially say, I'm sorry, and promise to never do that again. If your child had been skinned alive, do you, would you say that justice has been done this day because a group of people said, I'm sorry, and promised to never do it again? That doesn't bring back your child. Do you understand? If your husband goes off to war and fights the Ninevites, gets captured and tortured, saying, I'm sorry, and I promise to never do that again. Look, I've even put sackcloth on my cow. That's great for the future, but it doesn't do justice, does it? So you tell me. How could a good and loving God who does everything right, how can he, especially if you're Israel, how can he look at the people who wanted to exterminate the Jews, how can he look at them and say, you know what, I will be moved with compassion and I will forgive. What kind of God, that's not just, how can God in any sense of justice take that kind of wickedness and evilness and say, I will forgive? And the answer Every Christian knows that sin was paid for. And the wickedness and the torture and the Ninevites skinned children alive, but our Father sent His only begotten Son and His skin was torn off His back, wasn't it? He paid the penalty for those Ninevites and He paid the penalty for you and me. And the reason God could look at the Ninevites and say... I forgive is because he would absorb that pain. Now you think about that. Jonah was pointing toward the great prophet, the one who is the son of God, co-equal with God, Jesus. And Jonah, who ran away from his enemies, but Jesus ran toward his enemies. Jonah wanted to see him destroyed. Jesus wanted to see them saved. And with his own blood, he stretched out his arm on that Roman cross. And the justice of God the Bible says it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf and the Ninevites' behalf, I would add, so that we, and the Ninevites, I would add, might become the very righteousness of God. As Before we come to the table, I'm going to say some words that uh, have been said many, many times. They're from 1 Corinthians 11. The ushers, I would invite you now to begin making your way. The ushers are great because they're going to help us reverently find our way to the table. And I was joking earlier, if you don't know the rituals or the, the, the sort of the way this stuff happens... I really think you're at the right place and you need to continue to come and to seek God. All who seek will find. But really simply put, this is a, a time of remembrance. It's an act in a worship service in which Christians reenact something that happened on Passover a little over 2,000 years ago. 
Very simply, this is a meal for believers. If you are not a believer, you don't take this meal. You just watch other people take this meal. Why? Because it doesn't make sense for you. It's not a connection to your Lord and Savior. You don't profess the Lord and Savior. But for believers, they take this. Why? To remember what Jesus did for them on the cross. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And for all those who have received Jesus as their Savior, in a way they've received that broken body as their own. And they say, Jesus, you took the death that I should have died, and you lived the life I should have lived. And that leads to the cup. He says, in the same manner after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take it, all of you. And then he adds, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And believers take this bread and they take this cup and it reminds them, I remember Jesus died the death I should have died and he lived the life I should have lived. And in a way, just like I eat this food and it gets in me, it's like, I believe Jesus, you are alive inside of me, living even today through me, that I might become the very righteousness of God. And so uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then uh, the ushers will lead all those uh, uh, who wish to uh, come to the table, and uh, they'll help you uh, get through it reverently. Let's pray together. Father, for all of us who have uh, stood before you guilty of knowing a lot of Scripture, just not putting it into practice, we fall on your grace and your mercy. And we thank you, God, that you knew the Scriptures perfectly and you lived them perfectly. And you have imputed that right standing to us. And so we thank you, God, that being a sinner doesn't keep us from you. Being a sinner is a prerequisite to being saved by a great hero. And we thank you, God, that this supper is about what you did for us, what we could never do for ourselves. The Ninevites could never fast enough or put on enough sackcloth or ashes. It's your great compassion that counted. And Father, even today, it's your great compassion that counts. So I pray that we would not just hear the word, but we would be doers. And for some of us, we can do, as soon as the benediction happens, we can walk out and begin putting this into practice. For others of us, we've been planning a, a certain act of obedience for a long time, and it needs to go into motion again. Whatever it is, God, I pray that we'd be so quick to believe, hearing the word of God, the simple word, to not just know it, but do it, to put it into practice. Thank you, Father, for Jesus who ran for you. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.